0: Some of our favorite movies, I'm sure, are those that end happily ever after. I'm not going to go through the list of movies that end that way. But we all like movies that end with the good guys winning and the bad guys losing. Like, that's the way it should be. And in Psalm 1 and 2, those psalms, they just fit right into that pattern. In both psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, we're in this series in the book of Psalms, we see that the bad guys lose, the good guys win. God wins. For example, Psalm 1-6. Just, just a quick review. Psalm 1-6. It's the last verse of Psalm 1. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So you go the way of the wicked, you're going to lose. You stay with the Lord, you're going to watch out for you. And it'll be happily ever after. I mean, the psalm just... That's the way you want it to end. And then you remember in Psalm 2, there's this, there's this coup, there's this conspiracy among the rulers of the earth to overthrow the Lord and the Lord's anointed. But then you get to the end of Psalm 2, and you see how it all ends. Psalm 2, verse 12, kiss his son, that's the king, or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment, blessed are all who take refuge in him you if you come against the lord you're going to lose the bad guys lose the good guys win the lord will win and it all gets wrapped up happily ever after so one of the things i love i love about psalm 1 and 2 is that they just they end right where you would hope they would end with those with the lord having blessing and refuge And those that have rebelled, they get their their comeuppance. They they get what they have sown. They reap what they've sown. They get destruction. It's the happily ever after story, Psalm 1 and 2. But when we step into Psalm 3, which is the psalm for today, we quickly realize sometimes God's people don't get to walk in the happily ever after in this life. Man, you would really hope that if you're with the Lord, life is always great. I mean, it's smooth sailing, but that's just not the way it is. Psalm 3 teaches us that often God's people have to walk through suffering. Here's how one scholar uh, describes what Psalm 3 does for us. Psalm 3 challenges us with its clear message that the life of the faithful is not a life free from the pain of attack. From those who would oppose us. If you walk with the Lord, someone's going to oppose you, because you are walking with the Lord. Psalm three is that story. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Psalm three. Remember, in this journey through the Psalms, we we're not going to put up we're not going to put up the scripture, the main text, up on the screen. I just want you to have it there, a Bible in front of you, uh, or just listen along as we go. Now, if you have a Bible, in any Bible you have, it's going to say something. There's going to be something just under the heading. Psalm 3 with some, some type of wording. Then you get to verse 1. It's that thing I want to mention real quick. In, in the New International Version, it reads A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So this is this subheading. It actually never, it doesn't get a verse uh, to itself, it just is this subheading. Now what I want us to know before we ever jump into verse 1 is this gives context for the psalm. This is a psalm supposedly David would have sung or prayed while he was fleeing as his son Absalom was trying to overtake the throne. So he has this son Absalom. Absalom wants to run a coup. So he he, uh, emerges in power and is going to try to overthrow his dad while his dad, David, flees Jerusalem. He's a man of great power, and yet his son is trying to overthrow him. And he flees. And as he's fleeing, there's this prayer. Now that's what—that's the tradition. That's at least the, the, the standing tradition for this psalm. But here's the thing. That subheading got added much later into the Scriptures. And scholars don't know exactly when it, they came into the psalms. There are, there are many psalms with many subtitles. And so we take them as accurate, but we do not take them as the inspired Word of God. Okay? Does that make sense? So we're not taking that description as inspired, the inspired Word of God, but we'll take it as accurate because it's a long-held tradition that this psalm was declared, it was sung, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it came into form while David was fleeing uh, his son Absalom. So it gives us context. But then years later, the, the God's people pick up this psalm as a cry for them as individuals and as for the people of God. But we need to understand that what we read right, off, right out of the gate, right underneath the heading, is not the inspired Word of God. It's a subheading to give context that's come in later. But it's a long-held tradition. So we're going to take it as accurate, but not as Bible. All right. Now, we've said that. We'll come back to that over and over again because there's so many subheadings. But we at least acknowledge uh, what it is. Jump in verse 1. Here it is. Verse 1. We'll go through verse 2. David begins, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Let's stop there. I want to note a couple things right out of the gate. First word in the psalm is Lord. Now depending on what Bible you're using the NIV actually gives us a way of seeing what is behind the word Lord. There's actually a Hebrew there's a Hebrew name behind the 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 word Lord. And that Hebrew that Hebrew word is the word for the personal name of the God of Israel. We say it in English Yahweh but in Hebrew, there were no vowels. So no no one really knows exactly how they said the personal name of God because they weren't supposed to say the personal name of God because it was so holy. It was not to be on the lips of a sinful human being. But we'll, we, we've come to it by way of tradition in English, uh, 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 pronouncing that Yahweh. So right out of the gate, David declares Yahweh. This is a Personal name of the God of Israel. The reason I even highlight this is I want us to acknowledge that right out of the gate, as he is uh, fleeing uh, this coup from, his, uh, you know, by the hands of his son Absalom, he declares the personal name of his God, a God he's in relationship with, a God he knows. Some scholars say this would be equivalent to what what Paul will talk about in the New Testament as the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to cry out to God, Abba, Father. It's the same kind of personal relationship. That is, that David is crying out to a God he knows. Not a God he's just heard about, but a God he knows. And what we see is, the reason he's calling out to, to the Lord is because his enemies are multiplying and they're mocking him. Now, You don't see Absalom's name anywhere in those verses. You don't see anything about a coup anywhere in the verses. But here's the thing. If you go back into 2 Samuel, what you're going to find is when the story is recorded of Absalom trying to overtake the throne, these two things are happening. David's enemies are multiplying, and they're actually calling out to him judgment over his head. I want you to just take a look. I just want you to see, just kind of kind of take the psalm, and I want to just take it, and I want to match some, some of the history to it. 2 Samuel 15, take a look. This is how it's recorded, uh, part of the story. 2 Samuel 15, verse 10 through 12. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor. I'm just going to stop there. Uh, Absalom is picking up the support of one, of one of David's main guys. So there's betrayal in the story, too. So he calls Ahithophel to come, and so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. So, so it's not just that his son's trying to overtake the kingdom. It's literally a, 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 a coup that is expanding through the kingdom. And David just continues to see his enemies multiply. I just can't help at this point, although this is not the application section. You ever felt like your enemies are multiplying? Yeah, bet you have. Sometimes that happens. It's like, can I get a break? And then it just seems like the conspiracy keeps expanding. And then, not only do you have people coming in, coming into the fold of the coup, you have people calling down judgment on David. Take a look at how it's recorded: Second Samuel, verse uh, chapter sixteen. It's just one chapter over, as David ap- approached, a man from the same clan as Saul's family. Just for context, Saul was the first king of Israel, and then God removed his favor over Saul, and he anointed David. right. so there's this guy from Saul's family, came out from there, his name was Shemi of Gerar, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, and as he cursed, Shemi said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. So as he's running, fleeing his life, now he meets a man who speaks curses over his head, says something like, in shorthand, sounds like God will not deliver him. Now, right there is just two things sitting in that verse. So we're going to make quick mention of it. Not only could you could, could David here now think he is not even worthy of God's favor. God's not going to deliver you. Why? Because you're not even worthy of. Or, God has literally become so angry, He will not deliver you. Which I I have a sense that some of us feel that way sometimes. That you're not even worth enough for God to care about. Or, you are worth something, but you've made God so mad, He's just casting you out. This, This is something I think we all can feel. But in context, David is crying out to the God he knows, Would you please come to my aid? Because the enemies are multiplying and they are declaring that you will not deliver me. But here's the thing I love in verse three and four, uh, three through six, which we're going to jump into in just a second. He doesn't pick that up. He does not pick up the curse placed on his head. Take a look at how he what he says next. Verse three. But you, Lord, you're a shield around me. My glory the one who lifts, up my, my, uh, lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord. He answers me from His holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. So I think you're noticing right out of the gate that in the midst of this coup expanding and in the midst of Him being cursed, that is, God will not deliver you In the midst of all of that, his next response is to call out to the Lord for his help. He doesn't pick up this belief that God is not for him. Actually, he does the opposite. He continues to go to the Lord. Now, here's the thing, and we missed it in the New International Version translation. It looks like in verse 4 and 5, the reason that that he's going to continue to call out to God is because he knows that when he does, God will answer. But it misses what's happening in the Hebrew. So I'm going to let one scholar say it better than I can, and then I want you to see a different translation. It's real important to notice what's happening behind the scenes in the original language. Here's how one, uh, one linguist says it. The passage, particularly verse 4 and 5, the passage is perhaps better rendered as a conditional sentence. And when you do that, this implies that the psalmist's confidence is grounded in previous experience of divine deliverance. As Yahweh has protected in the past, so he can be trusted to save in the present, no matter how hopeless the circumstances. See, what we miss in the NIV is it's as if David is saying, I know you, and therefore because I know you, if I do this, then you'll do this. What's happening in the Hebrew, though, is David is rehearsing what God has done in the past. So David, what he's doing is he's leaning on the fact that in the past this has happened and this is what you have done. And I'm going to stand right there on what you've done so I know what you will do now. Take a look at how the English Standard Version uh, translates this. Verse 4 and 5. You can see it pretty clearly. It makes sure the ESV puts it in, in where it needs to be in the past tense. I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. And I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. So in the midst of this emerging coup, an increase in enemies, curses on his head, one of the first things he does is he cries out to the Lord. He will not pick up the curses. And the second thing he does is he remembers the way God has taken care of him in the past. It's very instructive. We'll we'll get to that eventually. So he remembers that God has cared for him. Actually, one of the most basic ways he knows God has cared for him is he's gone to bed and he woke up. He went to bed and he woke up. Now, when you, got, when you have thousands of people trying to take your head and when you go to bed and wake up, that is a sign God has disdained you. I didn't think this way when I woke up this morning. I, I just, this wasn't on my radar. Like, I I just, I mean, I'm thankful I woke up, but I didn't think it was really something amazing. But for David to go to bed and wake up as he's on the run, well, that's something. And he remembers the fact, something so simple, that he went to bed, he woke up, God sustained him. Now, because David's remembering the way God did work, he now has something to say about, about this present moment. So he's going to move into a prayer, a very specific prayer. We're going to have to, we'll unpack it. Verse, verse seven, he says this, arise, Lord, deliver me, my God, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. Now, now this first section of verse seven, I I think, I think for us, makes a lot of sense. Something you could pray right now. Like, Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. That still has relevance. I don't think we have a lot to say there. He's still asking the Lord to deliver him in this moment. It's that next section of verse 7 that I think we might have some problems praying today. At least it doesn't seem to translate as well. Not unless I just don't like your teeth and I want them gone. Like, what is that? I mean, uh, like... like, (laughs) God would you take George's teeth out? just take them out now George, if you pull your teeth out right now okay okay, don't you do it I don't want to know I don't I, that was spontaneous another Holy Spirit moment I don't know what was going on there um, I just I think I intuitively look to the left and you just keep sitting there so if anybody else wants to sit there I, yeah I mean I'd talk about Ethan you know right there if he had to okay um, so, uh, verse, these, this second part of verse 7 is the thing we need to unpack real quick. So when David prays for his enemies to be struck on the jaw, that's a way of saying, God, would you, would you publicly shame those who have publicly dishonored me? It's a way of saying, God, I, as your anointed, have been, have been publicly shamed. Would you now right that wrong? And 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 so this is this is really an idiom in a way of describing public shame in a way that we don't typically talk about it. We we don't typically talk about that. Um, you know, I, 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 there are ways we could talk about being publicly shamed uh, in, in our culture. This is a way of describing it in their culture to strike someone on the jaw. All right. It, now it's that next one that we really need to unpack because I I mean I we have some sense of being struck on the jaw as having maybe some sense of shame? Knocking someone's teeth out, breaking the teeth. It's not even knocking them out, just breaking their teeth. That's not typically the way we talk. Um, At least not in the context that David's here praying it. So, So let's understand a couple things about what's going on when he prays that their teeth, their teeth would be broken. Often in the scriptures, particularly in this culture, God's enemies are described as lions. And lions having powerful teeth. That is, fangs that will clamp down on the prey. Just take a look at it in one place. We're not going to go all the different places in the Hebrew Bible where we see this playing out. Just look at Joel 1. Joel 1.16. Joel here, uh, this oracle of the Lord through the prophet Joel. A nation has devi- inv- uh, invaded my land. A mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lion. It it was a way there of the Lord communicating the power of the enemy, the grip of the enemy on God's people. It had the prey in its mouth. And so the teeth represent the weapon that is the way of keeping the prey locked up. And so to, so to, to, to pray for someone's teeth to be broken is a way of praying for release. It's a way of praying for rescue. It's not, we're not literally here talking about, I hope their teeth fall out. Because when their teeth fall out, ha ha, jokes on them, they can't eat anymore. Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about David praying for release. Because it is the teeth that have clamped down on the prey. You break the teeth, you release the prey. Take a look, just a couple places, a couple places. We'll go to Job. This is actually Job talking. Actually, Job in this prayer is describing all the good things he's done in life. One way he describes all the good things he's done in life is, say this, I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. You see, you see how teeth here works? Uh, how it's playing here, the imagery? And then Psalm 58, 6, another Psalm of David. Break the teeth in, in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. So when David prays, break the teeth of the wicked he's praying release release the prey from their mouth and in his situation he's praying for rescue he's praying for release he's praying for safety he's praying that god would come and deliver him which in we will find this over and over again in the psalms you have parallels So there's one way of saying it in the front part of the verse, and then it's going to get said another way in the second part, but they say the same thing. So to pray for deliverance is to pray that the teeth of the wicked are broken. Same prayer. So David here prays, God, take me out of the snare of my enemy. Would you please rescue me? And so he ends the prayer this way. Verse 8. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Here's the thing about verse 8. All along the way, he's praying for deliverance. He's praying God would do a work. He knows God's done a work in the past. Would you do it now? The the prayer ends still in suffering. this This is a prayer of confidence that God will one day take care of his enemies. But the prayer has not yet been answered. See, this prayer, this psalm ends while he's still on the run. But God's not going to give up on the fact that God, David's not going to give up on the fact that God will deliver him. This is so important for us. This is where I want to drive this home and I want to take a quick, a quick tour de force through some other scriptures because you got to see this thing. God's people are not free from suffering. Just because you come to church or you believe in Jesus, just because just because you're a good person doesn't mean you get a pass on suffering. Actually, we are the ones that the devil wants most of all. And there will be enemies who come against us. Just take that to the bank. And yet in the midst of the suffering, you and I still can pray. I know God will be my deliverance. Now that doesn't mean like you're being delivered and you're declaring to God, thank you for being my deliverance. Some people never get healthy. Some die at the hands of their enemies. But you take it to the bank, God will still deliver. And what we find over and over again is God's people, God's people declare prayers of confidence in the midst of suffering. We do not just pray glory to God when we're released from the fangs of the enemy. We pray glory to God. He is my deliverer, even when the fangs are in the flesh. Take a look how this starts to look. This is the thing David will declare in that famous verse. Psalm 23, 4. I'm reading out of King James. I just don't think you can get any better than this version. Right here on this verse. This is David. It's the same thing that's in Psalm 3. Just fast forward in the Psalms. Yea, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. This isn't a prayer of, I never walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's while I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It is a prayer of of confidence that God delivers even when life really, really Hope it's okay to say that. I think we've been together long enough. I always want to be a little provocative. So that you feel something. I want you to feel it. If I sanitize everything, you'll never feel anything. You feel like this is just churchy. This isn't churchy, this is life. And life sucks. And yet, when it sucks, we pray deliverance. Okay. It's the same thing that's happening in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. You know I love the verses. So I, because I love them and I'm the preacher, I get to bring them up again. Here it is, Habakkuk 3.17. Though the fig tree does not bud, no grapes on the vines, no uh, the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, you know what that means. Life, don't don't repeat it. I, okay, because then I'm calling you to maybe sear your conscience. Okay. Yeah. Life stinks. Yeah. Yes. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Because He will deliver. Not because food's all of a sudden going to pop up on the vines, even when life is bad and the enemy has come against you or enemies. And sometimes that's your own family. You say, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. Not because life's become comfortable, because I know in the end He wins. That's the way we pray. Let's come back into. Just join up with our good friend Peter. Do you remember this? Peter, he wrote this. We covered this ground. We just covered the ground. Let's bring them up at least again. First Peter 4, 12 through 13. In the midst of suffering, here's what Peter says. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. See what Peter just did there? You don't just rejoice because life is all of a sudden happy and everything gets healed up. No, you rejoice because your eyes have been moved from the now to the future. And you know in the future the glory of Christ is revealed and all is made well for his people. That's why, that's why you rejoice. Because you know the end of the story. Not because the story has all of a sudden just changed and life is comfortable. No, we as a people, we declare prayers of deliverance even in the midst of suffering. That's Psalm 3. I don't know if you can say it any better than from the Apostle Paul. This man suffered greatly, and yet he still penned these words. This is the heartbeat of Psalm 3. Here's what he writes, Psalm chapter 8, we'll go with verse 28, and then we'll pick up the last verses of that chapter, verse 38-39. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, and who have been called according to his purpose. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Sounds a lot like, from the Lord comes deliverance, may your blessing be on your people. Even if death, even if enemies, even if they multiply, from the Lord comes deliverance, may your blessing be on your people. And you know why you can take confidence in that? Because I bet you have a lot of examples of where he's done it in the past. So, Paul, David ends in the midst of the coup, claiming God's deliverance. That—that that is a message for us in our day. So let's take away some application. I got just two this morning. Just two things I want to like walk away from this morning. Two things. First one is this: Remember what God has already done in your life. Before you and I go down the self-pity, the self-pity railroad, never forget to look back and remember where God has been with you. I have no doubt each of us can look back in our life and say, wow, God was with us. Bill, this is why I love being in person. I, I, I'm just going to bring, I, I will never forget, I'll never forget where you, me, and Laura were there. Uh, some of you don't know Laura Conover, Bill's uh, wife, passed away of cancer with a very quick sickness. And I remember Laura, I remember when, when you came home, Bill, I remember you, we were sitting there and she had, she had just, you guys had decided no more treatment. Which, you know, when you say no more treatment when you got cancer, not unless God miraculously heals you, you're going to pass away in this body. And, what, and I just remember, I remember where she was sitting, and all Laura did was rehearse all these blessings God had given her in her life. She did not bemoan. I'm sure she had a pity party. I mean, I'm sure she had her pity party. We, that's human. But then she remembered all God had done. And she took that with her into glory. I say that because no matter what you and I face, remember what God's done for us. Every one of us has got places where we go, man, God was with us. Man, God was with us. God was with us. Yeah, life stinks right now, but I know God was with me and He's with me now and He's going to see it through. You keep remembering where God's been with you. So do not forget that. When you get on your self-pity train, because we all get on it, do not forget where God has been with you. And thank him for that. This is what David did. It's what we got to do. All right. Second thing. This is one of my favorites right here because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, not You get it. Like, I'm looking for the scriptures to change me even when I don't like it. And this one really got under my skin. Although I came up with it, it's right in there. It's right here. So, like, here it is. Remember that you're not that strong. Now, I'm referring that refers to something. What do you mean that strong? Well, you know how we all say it. That strong. Like what I'm saying is, you're not as strong as you think you are. All right. You can't save yourself. Just in case anybody wanted to anybody was wondering, no, you can't save yourself. So here's what this application drives to. You're a needy person. Do you like being called needy? I don't. Don't call me needy. I'm not needy. I'm self-sufficient. I don't want to raise needy children. Do you want to raise needy children? No, you don't want to raise needy. Do you want your grandkids to be needy? No, you don't want your grandkids to be needy. You don't want them coming over to your house all the time asking for things. No. Well, maybe you do with your grandkids. I don't know what that's like. I don't want my kids asking for stuff all the time. Um, I don't want to raise a needy kid. That sounds offensive. But if you're not needy, what's the other option with the Lord? You got it all together? Do you have it all together that you don't need the Lord? No. We're needy people. And it would be good to recognize that. We are so in the business of being strong and self-sufficient that we forget we are needy people. And when we are so so self-sufficient and strong and independent in every every other area of our life, Guess what? You can't turn that off when you come to the Lord. Here's how one scholar says it. He's one of my favorite theologians. He says it this way. This was really the catalyst for this um, this application, uh, this point. Here it is. Here's what he wrote. Being a Christian is first and foremost all about receiving, asking, and depending. It's when you don't feel needy. Or so when you don't pay much, pray much, That you lose your grip on reality and think or act in an unchristian manner. In fact, as you grow as a Christian, you should feel not more self-sufficient, but more needy. If you don't, I'm not sure you're growing spiritually. That breaks me. You know how many people tell me, I know I'm asking God a lot. I know I don't feel strong enough, but this is really hard. And they feel like their faith's not like, they don't feel like they have enough faith because they, see, they, they feel so vulnerable and weak. That's exactly, like, that's, that's actually a fruit of your dependence on the Lord. You and I will going to feel weak. Where else are you going to go? This quote just bent my brain. The more I grow in Christ, the more I want you to think I'm growing stronger as a Christian. And what's a sign of being strong as a Christian? When bad stuff happens, you don't, you don't appear weak. Can you imagine displaying weakness and someone says, look at that strong Christian? What? But if you don't acknowledge your weakness, the opposite is you think you have it together. And none of us have it together. I don't have it together. You know, I've told you this often and I had this feeling this morning, so I will share it with you. I have told you often, sometimes I don't feel like coming to church. I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to always like you think I'm just like, I just love being in the church and like, I just love the Bible. Like just God, just like anointed me with just like some type of holiness that I always want to be in the scriptures and I'm just some holy man walking around. No, this morning I did not want to come to church. I just wanted to scoot through the day and do what I wanted to do. I didn't want kids. I didn't want a wife. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do today. But you know, you know, the reason I'm bringing this up is just I want you to know. The reason I'm standing here, number one, I have a job. This is my job. You have to go to your job. Second, we need each other. We're not superhumans. And you're not super Christians. So when you go through your week and you hit a really difficult patch and you say, man, I'm weak. I need somebody. Praise God. That's exactly where you're supposed to be. You're not some pull yourself up by your bootstraps Christian that only needed God to get into heaven and you got the rest on your own. When you're growing as a Christian, you become more needy. And man, what a reminder. King David, who killed Big animals with his hands by the strength of the Lord goes to the Lord when he needed help. A needy man. He was a warrior, but a very needy man. So here's the next step. I'm hoping it gets under our skin this week. Describe yourself to God as weak and needy in your prayers this week. So for example, we just start out, God, I am weak and I am needy. And then go on with your prayer. Sometimes the best thing you and I can do is get the words out of our mouth. And if you don't, I just hope it makes you feel a little uncomfortable to call yourself needy and weak. That's the goal. So then we put ourselves in this right relationship with God where you acknowledge you don't have it together. That's why you're praying to God in the first place. So I don't know what enemy has come against you. I don't know what challenges you're facing, all of you. I don't know what has just made your soul downcast. But I am sure you probably feel weak. And that is not a bad place to be. Actually, it's the exact place we go to call out for deliverance. So let's pray. Father, we as a people acknowledge we are weak. And we are whiny, needy people. So deliver us from our hardships. And help us where, where, where we are struggling. Would you move us in our emotions in our mind and we know you'll do it because you've done it in the past we pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ and together we say Amen